Well, if you would be turning your Bibles with me to Jeremiah chapter 23, we're going to take a brief pause in our Roman series this Labor Day weekend and look to the prophet Jeremiah. We're going to look particularly at verses 21 and 22. So hear this, God's very own word to us, his beloved people. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 21 and 22. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, some of you may be familiar with the name Paul Bourget. Paul Bourget was a French novelist in the late 19th century, wrote a lot of famous novels. One of his most famous novels was a book called The Disciple. And The Disciple tells a story of a French academic uh, who lived the scholarly life. He he lived in a city, he lived in an apartment in a a high-rise, about four flights of stairs up to his apartment, He had a very predictable schedule. He'd wake up at a predictable time each morning, have his breakfast, read his books until the mid-afternoon, invite his students to climb those four flights of stairs up into his study and to learn from him. And everybody in the town knew, well, he just lives the life of an academic, a very recluded, scholarly life. And then one day, out of the clear blue sky, this academic was summoned to a criminal inquest. A student of his had committed murder. and, And part of his defense was, well, everything that I am, All my hopes and desires, all my way of thinking about life is shaped by my teacher. He's the one who made me who I am. And and the whole reason I committed murder is just because of all these desires that he put in my head because I've sat for so many years going up those four flights of stairs every day to sit under his teaching. And so the the novel tells the story of something that Paul Bourget himself had experienced as the Lord called him as a young man out of his agnosticism into the Christian faith. He he did a book tour in the United States about this book and did an interview with the New York Herald. And this is what he had to say. I think it's quite interesting. He said, For many years, I, like most young men in modern cities, was content to drift along in agnosticism. But I was brought to my senses at last by the growing realization that there is in this life such a thing as responsibility for the influence we have upon others. I saw that the life of a man who simply said, I don't know, and not knowing, I do the thing that pleases me, was not only empty in itself and full of disappointment and suffering, but was a positive influence for evil upon the lives of others." Well, what Paul Bourget discovered and illustrated so aptly in his novel, the people of Jeremiah's day really lived to the full. That's, in a sense, the context of our passage here in Jeremiah. Now, there's one important difference, of course, and that's that the false prophets who are so harshly condemned in these verses, they didn't claim to be agnostic about God. They claimed to speak for him. But in speaking for him, they didn't bring to the people the words that God had spoken. They claimed to be sent but they hadn't been sent by God. They rushed to give a prophecy, but not words that God had spoken to them. And so the words that they spoke were from their own mind, and they were not only empty in themselves, they brought suffering in the end. They were a positive influence for evil upon the lives of their fellow people. Now, that's very sobering, but that's not all these verses teach us. There's a positive element here, although it is couched, to be sure, in the negative example of the false prophets. But the positive element is this. God's word really does have the power to change his people. 
God's word really does have the power to change his people. That's, as we shall see, what makes the false prophet's failure to stand in God's counsel, to communicate his words, and the people's eagerness to listen to them all the more wicked and horrifying. Now, to bring out this positive element more clearly, I've summed it up in the key truth for us in this passage. It is this. The preaching of God's word changes God's people. Full stop. The preaching of God's word changes God's people. Now, I think that raises a question for us. It's worth pondering. How how deeply is God's word formed in you? Now, as you think about that, think about also the, the rubric that you're using to be able to tell. Like, how, how could you tell? How deeply is God's word formed in you? And then also, how would you know? What's, what's the standard of measurement that you're using to be able to know how deeply is God's word genuinely formed in me? I mean, I mean think about it. In this room, there are probably collectively thousands of hours of having sat under the preaching of God's word you know, in the whole of our Christian lives. So if, if the standard was our ability to reproduce even one quarter uh, of the sermons that we've heard from memory, the outline of the sermons we've heard from memory. <laughs> Not going to happen. If the standard was your ability this time next week to reproduce from memory what you're about to hear in the next 30 minutes, I couldn't do that, and I'm preaching. <laughs> and and, and even, if, even if you could do it, all that might prove is that you have a really good memory. I mean, I mean think about it. There are lots of British atheists who were forced in their British boarding schools to learn whole books of the Bible and can recite them from memory with, along with a great many of some of the greatest hymns in the Christian faith and yet hate God with a passion. So what's the standard? How do we know that God's word is genuinely formed in us? Here's the standard, Christ-likeness. How are the things that we're hearing week in and week out challenging us to turn from our sin and run to the throne of grace? And then are we doing it? Are we running to the throne of grace? Now, you may recall that the prophets, or, or rather, uh, Jeremiah, the, 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 the situation in which he's prophesying in, uh, was a situation of intense opposition and persecution. Jeremiah faced opposition all throughout his life. He faced opposition from the people who, didn't hear, who did not want to hear a word of what he had to say. He faced opposition from the ruling class who viewed him as a, a troublemaker. He faced opposition from the religious establishment who didn't like his denunciations of their worship's practices, their, their whole way of life. And that's because the spiritual condition of the kingdom of Judah at this time was rotten to the core. Oh, to be sure, they had the outward forms, uh, the outward manifestations uh, of religious worship. Outwardly, they seemed to be covenanted to Yahweh, their God, but, but inwardly, they did not care for him in covenant faithfulness. They trusted in God's promises to David. They saw that he had promised to David, David, you'll never lack for a king on your throne. I will establish your dynasty. And they thought, well, awesome. We can do what we want. They said, uh, Jerusalem, they heard God say, Jerusalem, I will protect you. My, my temple, a visible manifestation of my presence with my people is in Jerusalem. And they thought, great, that means God just loves us because we are just some awesome people and we can do whatever we want and he's going to protect us no matter what because we're so superior to the nations. So it, they didn't hear God's call to them to be a people renewed in holiness. They didn't think that God was interested in, a, in, in personal presence with them in renewed righteousness and holiness. They, they made him out to be a God much like the other nations had God's concerned with his own little slice of earth. So, so they made him a God close at hand and not transcendent and far away, not concerned with his holiness and righteousness and the invitation that he gives to his people to mimic him in righteousness and holiness and justice and equity. 
So the people wanted false prophets like the false prophets that they had. They despised the word of the Lord. We see that in verse 17. And notice this even in the implication in verse 22. If the false prophets had stood in God's counsel, if they had proclaimed his words to his people, then this would have resulted, they would have turned from their evil doing. So does that mean the people have been duped by the false prophets? Like, well, I mean, God, we just had these crummy false prophets. They, they were preaching, us to, preaching to us a, a sour message, so we have an excuse. No. I mean, they had been duped, sure, but they've been willing, willingly duped. Implicit in their rejection of God's word, implicit in their embrace of the false prophet's message is the recognition that God's word meant to change them. And the, the, the most risky thing you can do if you're nourishing sin in your heart is to come into contact with God's word. And implicitly, they recognize that. So it's much easier to listen to the false prophets with their easy words and comforting message than to be coming into contact with God's word. And that's true for us too. It's, it's sobering. If you're going to justify your sin, if you're going to nourish an affection for a sinful habit or a, a sinful way of thinking, sooner or later, you're going to have to denigrate the preaching ministry of God's word because that's the most threatening thing to you in your sin. Sooner or later, you're going to have to say, ah, this just isn't really doing much for me. Ah, I've heard it all before. I can catch up in the curve. Sooner or later, you're going to have to denigrate the preaching ministry of God's word because the most risky thing for you in your sin is to come into contact with the God who means to change you through his word. The preaching of God's word changes us. This is why God lays so much stress in this passage upon the fact that the false prophets have not stood in God's counsel, that they haven't been in God's heavenly courtroom in the presence of the triune living God, awesome in majesty and holiness and power, surrounded by cherubim and seraphim and the heavenly host. They haven't heard him speak. They don't know his will or his mind. Now, you remember, right, the, the beginning of the prophetic ministry in the Old Testament? You can read about it in Deuteronomy chapter 5, which is really just a summation of Exodus 20. God meets his people at Mount Sinai. He descends upon the mountain in a fiery cloud. He speaks to his people, and the whole earth shakes, and the people are terrified. And they say to Moses, Moses, you go up on that mountain, and you listen to God, and you come back to us and tell him what he said. So Moses does. And remember how God responds to that? He says, oh, that my people would always fear my name like this. Because they're right. Who can hear the voice of the Lord and live? Who can hear the voice of the Lord who's not covered in Jesus' righteousness, who hasn't been changed and transformed by the power of this Holy Spirit? Who can hear that voice and live? Oh, that my people would always stand in the fear of me in that way. Remember also the beginning of Jeremiah's own ministry. The Lord appears to him, reaches out, touches his lips, and said, Jeremiah, I've put my words in your mouth. Remember the promise of Deuteronomy 18? When God promises Moses, Moses, after you, I'm going to raise up a prophet just like you. A prophet after you. Except that here's going to be the difference. He's going to speak and my people will listen. Do you remember John 1? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. The, the Jewish ear hearing that wouldn't just think of Genesis chapter 1, although they would, of course. They'd also think of the beginning of God's covenant presence with his people on Mount Sinai when they heard the voice of the Lord. And we're afraid. And now, here's the voice of the Lord. Come down to meet them. We have seen his glory full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1 says, In many ways God spoke to us through the prophets, but now, in these latter days, he's speaking to us through his Son. Here's the point of all this. You cannot encounter this word from God and be left unchanged. 
can't. Utterly impossible. And the great evilness of the false prophets of Jeremiah 23 is that they failed to bring to the people the one thing that would truly do them good. And the great evil of the people of Jeremiah's day is that they would not listen to the one thing that would truly do them good. Now, there's a vicious cycle here. I mean, the cynics among us could observe, well, I mean, isn't there at least one prophet in Jeremiah's day who's speaking to the people, God's word? Jeremiah himself, right? So, so why aren't they hearing Jeremiah's word, and why isn't that turning them from their evil? Now, we've got to be careful, because we are so prone to treat the word of the Lord like a commodity. So we've got to be careful. that This message is not that God's word is like a special incantation, or like a magical spell that you just speak over people, and it changes them irrespective of God's involvement or their involvement. No. We're beginning to see here the close connection that Scripture repeatedly draws between the word of God and God himself. Wherever God is, God's word is. Wherever God's word is, God is. And that close connection brings with it the personal involvement of God and his people whenever we hear his words. And, and this is critical, that involvement is either one of blessing or of judgment. There's no third option. So I mentioned a vicious cycle. Here we have it. As the people of Jeremiah's day heard Jeremiah's prophetic preaching, they encountered God himself and his demands upon them. And because they refused to listen to God, they ran back to the false prophets who spoke to them easy words, words they wanted to hear that that flattered them in their prejudices, words that sounded so morally right, so strict serious, so good and true, but were not the words of the one who had stood in God's counsel. And the more they they, they latched on to those false words, the less and less able they were to hear God's word, which only brought further judgment on their heads. And you can almost hear Jeremiah's lament in this passage, can't you? If only these people had a different heart. How quickly, if only they had a different heart, how quickly they would have snapped out of this vicious cycle. And that's just as relevant to us. It's sobering, but it's relevant to us. Here's how John Frame puts it. Sobering words. He says, The power of God's word brings wonderful blessings to those who hear in faith with a disposition to obey. But it hardens those who hear it with indifference, resistance, rebellion. God's word never leaves us the same. We hear it for better or worse. Now, given that that is true, it raises a a deeply important question for us. In what ways are the things that you regularly listen to during the week helping or hurting your ability to be blessed by the preaching of God's word on Sunday? How are they helping or hurting? You know, there are many voices that clamor for our attention each week. I mean, low-hanging fruit, social media, that's just obvious. But, But, you know, also other types of media that we imbibe, the books that we read, even the thoughts in our own heads, they clamor for our attention, they run, they run to speak to us their insights. Has the Lord sent them? Or maybe another way to ask that question is, do we have a reliable place that we can go to to be sure that we're hearing the word that the Lord has sent to us to, his people, to, to us as his people? To be hearing the word the Lord sent us so that we can be changed into his image. Has he sent anyone? And if so, who are they? Now, there are two aspects to the answer to that question biblically. And they're summed up for us in Ephesians 4. We've spoken about Ephesians 4 many times. The foundation text for us for the philosophy of ministry here at Christ Community Church. And so the first aspect of the question, who has the Lord sent to speak the Lord's words to the Lord's people is you. Did you know that? 
In Ephesians chapter 4, the great dynamic of love is, as you are built up in love, the more and more you are able, the more and more you are, are made mature in Christ, the more and more you are able to speak words in love to one another. And it's very interesting because the Greek in, in that passage doesn't just mean you speak Bible verses to one another, although that's true, obviously, but also your whole bearing, all of your conduct, all of the ways in which you have been uniquely wired and shaped by the Lord, all of that is being used by the Lord to speak words of truth to one another. And the more that happens, the more and more we are built up in encouragement and love, the more and more we lean into the life that Jesus has given to us as his disciples. So you ask, how does that happen? Here's the other aspect of that question. Also in Ephesians chapter 4, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and womanhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, all the competing voices that run to tell us their insights so that rather than listening to them, we may be sure that we're listening to the word of the Lord. So here's a passage Ephesians chapter 4, tracing back to Jeremiah chapter 23 and the whole of the Old Testament prophetic tradition, which argues for the deep importance of the preaching ministry in the lives of God's people. Not because preachers are just the same as Old Testament prophets. They're not. For one thing, Old Testament prophets stood in God's counsel in nearer a literal sense than New Testament preachers do today. I mean, they literally, nearly literally stood in God's presence. That oftentimes they were overwhelmed with the vision of the might and power and overwhelming majesty of God. They heard God's literal voice. New Testament preachers don't do that. We hear God's word in the same way that you hear God's word as you read the Bible. And its meaning is illumined to you by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that's been given to all of us in equal measure, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. So, so the importance of preachers to your Christian discipleship is not because preachers have access to God's counsel in a way that other Christians don't. Jesus has revealed God to all his people. Jesus has opened the way to the heavenly courtroom for all God's people. Jesus speaks a better word than Moses and all the prophets to all God's people. No, it's not because preachers have access to God's counsel in a way that you don't. It's not because preachers are more holy or more sanctified or smarter or more insightful than other Christians. We know that frequently that's not the case. But for this reason alone, in his wisdom, Jesus has set aside in his church men who are called to spend their time and energy standing in the counsel of his word so that their particular service to you, his beloved people, is to help you to hear his word better and to show you in word and in deed how to live it out. It's not, a, it's not a word that's far off or inaccessible to you. It's not a word that, that, that you can't hear, but it is a word that in the clamor and busyness and sin and distraction of this life would be quickly forgotten by us were it not for preachers and teachers to proclaim it to us week in and week out and to show us how it, how it applies to our lives, how it has feet in a world that is constantly moving. And it's a word, by the way, that's going to find purchase in your heart because you have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit who even now is leading and guiding you into all truth. It's the work he's been given to do, and he does it faithfully. And he does it through the preaching of his word, through the ministry of preachers. So, so we, we don't elevate preachers as men, but we do elevate the preaching of God's word. We need it. We need to hear God's word proclaimed to us from men who've stood in, God, in God's counsel. 
And by the way, that applies to me as much as to anybody in this room, and doubly so, since I'm not the main preacher here. I sit with you under the, the, preach, the same preaching of the word most Sundays. And I need it, because I see through a glass half darkly. There are sins and patterns of thought in my life that need to be called out. There are avenues for growth and pathways to greater maturity that I need to hear. And the main way that God uses to shape us, to shape me into the image of Jesus as we hear together his word proclaimed is through the preaching of his word. It's not from podcasts. It's not from books, although that, that, that is a hard one for me. <laughs> it's not from sermon jam clips on YouTube. Not even primarily from our own personal individual devotions. Now, don't hear me, hear me wrongly. All these things are important. They're good gifts. They have their place. But the main and primary way that God is shaping me into a more mature disciple of Jesus and equipping me for more useful, loving service to my fellow believers and to my unbelieving neighbors is through the preaching of his word, week in and week out. And by the way, one of the ways that I can tell just in my own experience that that is true is that as I sit under the preaching ministry of the word, even in this very moment, I don't control it. You ever thought about that? I mean, in our busyness, in our just crazy, hectic, modern life, it's probably the one place most of us sit in where we don't control the conversation. There's no opportunity for pushback, no opportunity for you to say, mm, I don't really see the relevance of that. No, no opportunity for clarification. All right, all right, well, what about this instance? No opportunity for any of that. It's a monologue, to be sure, but it's a monologue if it's preaching from God's word from the Holy Spirit himself, the one I most need to hear from. The, mo the one I most need to sit in silence under and, and sit before in humility and hear. Remember how Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 12? He says, now we're all the, the body of Christ and individually members of it. So, so there can be no boasting and lording it over each other. And yet in the body, God has appointed first apostles and then prophets and then teachers. We might say teacher preachers. That's, that's the sense of the office here. And then he goes on to mention all sorts of other gifts, miracles, healing, helping, administrating, so the work of the church. So, so there's no one upsmanship here, no far from it, because he follows all of that up with saying, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will still show you a more excellent way, and then launches into 1 Corinthians 13, the great chapter on love, which he says, unless this is exhibited in all of your serving, all these gifts are worse than useless. So the preaching ministry of God's word is not given to God's church to condemn us. It's given because God loves us. Isn't that the conclusion of our text in Jeremiah? The word of God proclaimed ought to do something to us. It should turn us from our evil way. It should turn us back to the Lord and set us upon a course of love. Love for God and love for our neighbor. So how do you hear the word of God proclaimed to you? Is it a blessing or a word of judgment. It all depends on how you respond to it. God's word always calls for a response. It's either lived out in blessing or ignored in judgment. Now, because this is true, hear this, there are going to be times when the application of the sermon to our lives is not immediately obvious. There are going to be times when I come to worship and I hear the word of the Lord proclaimed to me and leave worship mainly feeling perplexed. Because I'm coming into contact with somebody whose ways are not my ways, whose thoughts are not my thoughts. If the main thing that's happening when I enter into worship is I'm in, I'm, I'm in the presence of the living God through his word, and his word not just preached from the pulpit during the sermon moment, but also preached in the call to worship, 
in the songs that we sing, in the assurance of pardon, in the benediction, if the main thing that I'm coming into contact with is God himself, then inevitably, and maybe more often than not, if I'm paying attention, I'm going to leave feeling a little bit confused. Not because God's word is confusing inherently, not because he means to confuse us, not because it's spoken in another language, but because I'm being drawn out of my sinful self-centeredness. I'm being drawn out of the small things of my life. I'm being drawn out of the, the petty things that sin promises me. I'm drawn into something much bigger and in my discipleship to live it out because I've come into contact with God himself through his word. And so the challenge in that moment of our discipleship becomes how do I respond to my confusion? Because I, I think a lot hinges on this. Do I hide it because I'm embarrassed? Or, or I feel like, well, you know, I've been a Christian for a long time. I should probably know this. You know, I don't really want people to know that I'm struggling in this way. Or, you know, man, to really come to grips with all this is going to take a lot of cultivation, a lot of effort. I'm not really sure if I'm in for it. Or do I say, Lord, in humility, I'm going to seek out the ministry of faith, the community of faith that you've given me to help me to live this out. I'm going to seek out the pastors that I have. I'm going to seek out the elders that I have. I'm going to seek out the deacons that I have. I'm going to talk about this in my small groups or my discipleship groups. I'm going to seek out Christian men and women who I know and love and are mature. I'm going to be patient with the process. That's critical too. I'm going to be patient because I recognize in this life, the challenge is not to be, it's not to leave even this place this morning and just be, be righteous, be perfect, be holy, as to become so I'm going to be patient with that process. I'm going to recognize that the Lord may be speaking something to me on September 5th, 2021, that, that I don't see the relevance of to my life until September 5th, 2031 or 2041. The Lord may be working in my heart and planting seeds in my heart that, that, that just aren't obvious to me, maybe even until I reach glory. But I'm going to know that I, as I leave this place, because I've heard God himself, he's changed me. He's going to change me. And I want to live that out in faith. So a question for us. In what ways are you engaging the word that you hear preached each Sunday so that you can more effectively apply it to your life and live it out? I mean, here's, here's the, the sort of heart and soul for uh, the theological reason, the biblical foundation for small groups and for one-on-one -on -one discussions over coffee, over what the Lord is teaching us in his word. Here, here's the biblical justification not to hear his word and, and just have it sit empty within you but to go out in community and to seek to apply it. Recognizing it's not a failure if we leave this morning wondering, all right, well, what does this mean for me? It's an invitation to live it out, to recognize God's word means to change us and everything hinges on how we respond to it. So may we be a people who long to hear his words from his counsel and having heard them, seek to live them out in repentant faith. So what does Jeremiah 23, 21, and 22 teach us? Essentially this, God's word changes God's people. But more particularly, so that we can kind of see how it works out, teaches us we should be discerning about what and who we listen to. That's critical. Seeking most of all to be transformed by the preaching of God's word as we hear it with humility and repentant faith. Well, as he thought about these things, the commentator and theologian John Calvin couldn't help but to offer up before the Lord a prayer. And, and so I want to close with this. And, and as you hear these words, ask the Lord to, be, to have it be a prayer in your own heart as well, that he would take these words and, in, and, and put into your heart a deep desire to hear them and to ply them and to live them out. So let's pray. Grant, Almighty God, that as nothing is better for us or more necessary for our chief happiness 
than to depend on your word, for that is a sure pledge of your goodwill to us. O grant that as you have favored us with so wonderful a benefit, which you show to us every day, we may be attentive to hear you and submit ourselves to you in true fear, meekness, and humility, so that we may be prepared in the spirit of meekness to receive whatever proceeds from you, and that thus your word may not only be precious to us, but also sweet and delightful, until we shall enjoy the perfection that you, that of, the, of that life which your only begotten Son has procured for us by his own blood. And yes, Lord, may this be true in our lives and in our church family for the sake of your great name and our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.